The most important component of a great safety culture is leadership. If they're not following, you're not leading. Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast, where we discuss the new view of safety, the things that work, the things that don't work, and try to break down old view paradigms to help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike McCarroll. We've got a great podcast on tap for you today. I believe you're really going to enjoy this one. We have an interview with Philip Grison. Philip is a certified John Maxwell trainer. Philip is not only an employee here at ProSafe Solutions, but he also owns his own company called LeaderThink. And he has a whole series of LeaderThink podcasts as well. So with no further ado, let's get on with it. Hey, Philip, how you doing? Great, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm glad you were able to do this podcast with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess probably a good way to start out is tell everybody a little bit about yourself, a little bit personally, and a little bit about what you do here at ProSafe, and also a little bit about your company, LeaderThink. So I started with you at ProSafe 20 years ago, and through that time, first developed with understanding regulatory OSHA issues and providing that kind of training, um, serving as a part-time safety director for small companies. But at the same time, um, from day one, I was heavily involved with you in performing culture assessments, which was the most enlightening part about working at ProSafe. Um, on one hand, we were learning about the laws that applied to the work that people had to do, but why they wouldn't always follow them and the influences that management had on their workers that would uh, ultimately influence their culture. So I think that that uh, was a blessing in my life to be exposed to that level of safety management from day one. Um, Personally, I'm married and I have a couple kids. I'm in my 40s, but I have a, a whoops, a two-year-old at the house, so I don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> but uh, over over the course of my career with ProSafe, um, more and more every year, I became enlightened to the fact that leadership drives the bus with everything. Uh, I remember back in the day when we started um, in the early 2000s, that BBS was the popular acronym at the time, behavior-based safety. And the original peer-to-peer behavior-based safety was a good idea, but it seems like we've really grown to now further understand the system-induced errors that lead to the behaviors we see with our current understanding of how human performance influences behavior. So tell everybody a little bit about your company, LeaderThink. I'm LeaderThink started with having students tell me in classes that they wished I had a podcast um, because, you know, that people usually remember about 15 to 30 percent of whatever we talk about in a class. And some people really wanted to come back to those higher level concepts. And so I did it as a way of giving back to the community is where it started. But I've noticed, too, over the past five years that I, I am doing a lot more leadership training with companies. And that just seems to be the direction that life is pointing me. 
And so I wanted to follow that compass. And you have a real passion for leadership. And um, I guess maybe there are some folks out there who don't know who John Maxwell is. So if you would, talk a little bit about who he is and why his work is important. So I think many people would say that John Maxwell is the number one most accepted leadership guru alive on planet Earth today. Um, He has actually delivered leadership training in every country recognized by the United Nations. And his focus is on transforming people. Um, His current goal, I I think, is uh, an admirable goal. But before he dies, he wants to transform an entire country. And when we look out at the world today and, and all the division we see, that that is a, a goal that I think that our planet needs right now. John Maxwell has written several books. I, I can't remember the number, but it's uh, several books on leadership and, and uh, delivers high-level seminars and works with many different organizations to help them improve their leadership. And uh, if, if nobody's ever read John Maxwell's books, I highly encourage that. You know, at last count, I thought it was something like 31 books he's written. That's right. Yeah, it's been several. I'm, you know, a lot of times people will ask what leadership book that they should should buy, and uh, I make an analogy sometimes in classes with that statement. Who is uh, the better singer? Is it Taylor Swift or uh, Johnny Cash? And the thing about leadership books is they are forms of art, and what someone needs to do if they want to go on that path is find the art that actually inspires them. I'm happy to recommend some books, but what is Taylor Swift to one person might be Johnny Cash to another. So if you went on Amazon and just Googled leadership, you would find so many books by so many different authors. And the real key is to find an author and a style that inspires you. That being said, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell was a a great introduction for me and uh, it really did inspire me. But uh, again, I think you need to find what inspires you. So to further flush out that idea on finding your own inspiration, there have been many times in my life where someone has told me, you need to read XYZ leadership book. But leadership is about influence more than control and lecturing and telling. And that's why it's so important to find within yourself what inspires you instead of listening to what inspires others. And that's probably a really good lead-in to the next question I'm going to ask, and that is, from your perspective, just what is leadership? What is leadership? So we might need to sit here for a while. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is a comment that John Maxwell makes. He says that leadership is influence, nothing more. Um, There's a lot of depth to that statement, Uh, There are a lot of components to effective leadership, but I get why he says that. Leadership is different than control. Influence is different than control. People think that you can actually control human behavior, but is that really true? Even when you point a gun at somebody's face, they still have a choice in how they will behave. And I think most people, if they had a firearm pointed at them, it's predictable on how they would behave. But some people, you couldn't even control their behavior with a gun pointed at them. Leadership 
is about influencing behavior, the complete opposite of trying to control it. So that's why John Maxwell, I think, makes that statement. But other things that are part of leadership are personal growth is, is one of the main concepts of leadership, that we never stop growing. Um, and if we do stop growing, then we don't stand still. We actually move backwards. Just like if you were starting an exercise plan and you exercised for a while and then you stopped, you would not stay at the same physique or energy level. You would actually devolve and move backwards. You might even devolve into old behavioral habits, eating poor diets, uh, living a sedentary lifestyle. And the same thing goes on with your brain. If you're not moving forward, you don't stop and stand still at the same level of wisdom. You actually devolve into older behavioral patterns that don't serve you as well. So personal growth is a big part of leadership. Um, Coaching and the difference between coaching and lecturing is another major component. How to draw the problem and the solution out of the person you're coaching instead of telling them what their problem is and how they need to fix it. The best answers are always in the person because they are closest to the work or whatever issue they are dealing with. And before you can learn to coach others, you have to learn how to coach yourself. So I'd say self-awareness is another major component within leadership. Um, Communication techniques knowing how to communicate, knowing that the thoughts in our brain are never fully communicated through words out of our mouth. Um, If someone makes a a sentence-long statement to you, there's probably a paragraph in their mind. Um, If they have an essay in their mind, then they might communicate that in a full-blown paragraph. Or even if they take you to lunch and sit you down for an hour and try to give you the whole essay, there's probably a novel inside of their brain. So verbal communication is actually missing a lot of the communication that starts in the brain, which would probably lead to understanding the brain is a major component of leadership as well. What do you mean? We all react from our limbic brain on a regular basis, and then we also have a prefrontal cortex that makes us much more intelligent. It gives us the ability to plan Um, One of the things that separates us from a dog is our ability to plan. The dog is usually not concerned with what they're going to do on vacation next year, but we are. The dog is more concerned with what am I going to eat right now. Um, A large portion of our population operates on limbic brain 98% of the time. And and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but what is a limbic brain? So limbic brain is that emotional part of our mind that is always looking for the tiger in the room, looking for the fear, the threat that they need to deal with. And that part of our brain actually served us well for survival back in the caveman days. Survival was the number one issue for the human race. But today, unfortunately, that part of our brain, which is on autopilot, it reacts without trying to make it react. It, re- it requires no effort to engage it. But it reacts to words that people say in the same manner that it did millions of years ago as if they were a tiger in the room. 
So go ahead, Mark. And, and so that that kind of just just to be clear to people, that's what people refer to as the fast brain. Is that correct? Yes, a lot of people will call it fast brain because it is fast. It's on autopilot. You don't have to engage it. Um, It's highly emotional. It's highly judgmental. And sometimes it's a good thing. For example, if there was a tower crane on a job site and it lost a load of loose material, the limbic brain is what engages the fight or flight response and makes you run out of the way. It's what makes you swerve out of the way when someone pulls into your lane on the interstate. It is a good thing in certain circumstances. But when you're trying to understand the struggles of people, how to influence, how to coach, it doesn't serve you at all to be emotional, quick to react, and judgmental. So that means switching to another part of the brain, right? So that means that we have to become experts at managing our own brain, knowing when we are operating on limbic brain when we shouldn't be, and how to switch to the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal is the more unbiased, see the big picture part of your brain. It is slower and its uh, drawback is it's easily overloaded. If you've ever been to a class with high level topics, uh, the prefrontal cortex is known to feel overloaded at about 3 p.m. in the day. And the prefrontal cortex, if I'm correct, that's the slow part of the brain. That's the slow part of the brain, but the much more enlightened part of the brain. I always like to visualize that inside my head, there is a caveman with a club and a little Albert Einstein, and both are part of me. The caveman is on autopilot. Albert Einstein is something I have to purposely engage. So let me ask you, in the study of neuroscience, is it correct that the part of the brain that the leader uses actually affects chemical flow in the brain of the other person. That is very true. If, if anyone wants to research that further, I think Dr. David Rock has some great podcasts, YouTube videos, and books written on that subject. But uh, a basic example of that would be if I went to an employee and I said, let me give you some feedback. What I'm actually doing is engaging that limbic brain fight, flight, or freeze response. So if I tell someone, let me give you some feedback, I'm engaging a part of their brain that senses a tiger in the room. They either want to punch me in the face or they want to run away and stop listening to me. And sometimes managers really think that they're doing the employee a favor by making that statement, let me give you some feedback. But there's an assumed superior-inferior relationship there, that the, the manager is superior, and they are giving this needed feedback to an inferior worker. And so it, it actually triggers a pain response in the brain. So let's flip that scenario around and say the manager goes to the worker, observes the worker performing work well, and comes from a curious, inquisitive view and and asks, what is that you're doing there? Tell me more about that. I like what you're doing there. What they're doing is actually building up the pleasure response in the brain. And so if there is something that you wish the worker could see, instead of telling, hey, I see you're doing this wrong here, 
and instead asking, do you see anything we could improve here? They are triggering a pleasure response by asking instead of a pain response by telling. Wow, and that's almost the complete opposite of the way that, especially in safety, that things are practiced. In safety, in all aspects of management, in politics, in social media, we see over and over again people that think, hey, let me draw attention to your flaws is a way of influencing people. The thing is, is most people already know what their shortcomings are. They already know what regulations or what rules they're breaking. They don't need us to tell them that. We need to understand why they do those things. Why do you think it is, Philip, that leadership tends to gravitate toward that old model? There's a lot of history there. Um, there has been the blurring of social status for thousands of years with humans. If we go back a long time ago, it was get the work done or I will put your head on a stake and the next person will definitely do it. But then we evolved with more of a transactional type of leadership style where employees needed a company for a paycheck, and they did have more of a commitment to stay with the company for a long time. We don't see that as much today. Um, the work in the past also was more assembly line, predictable outcome type of work. People would work in a factory. They knew the clear path to the end result, how many widgets they would produce. But today's work, whether it's developing a fall protection plan and construction, completing a JSA, uh, coming up with a site-specific program, how I'm actually going to build a scaffold today, or developing a marketing plan are all forms of creativity. The average worker in, in the United States today is actually doing creative work, which is very different than what we did in the past, that assembly line style. So how you motivate creativity is very different than motivating speed and efficiency for work that has a crystal clear path and outcome. So what you're kind of talking about there is the difference between transactional leadership and transformational leadership. That's right. That's right. So, you know, back to your original question, I think part of the issue is we're still learning these things. It's not something that we've known for thousands of years. And as we become more aware, we see that most of the population is not searching these things out or desiring to become more aware. And if you combine that with, we see a lot of transactional leadership in the media when it's on the news, um, and we get bad examples of what leadership is that I think influences a lot of our population to think that that is the right form of leadership. But if a, a Republican said to a Democrat, you're stupid if you don't think, see things my way, is that really going to influence them to change? The insulting behavior doesn't seem to make major change. It seems to create more division and I, I don't think that people that do that actually intend that result. They actually believe by pointing out people's flaws that they're doing a good job, and they're not. They just don't know any better. They just don't know what they don't know. That's right. They don't know what they don't know. 
So I think that all of us, especially in the safety profession, it's not just a, a need. It's, it's actually our responsibility to tell the world about these concepts if we really want to see change. So that kind of begs another question. In terms of leadership development, what do you see? Uh, what percentage of companies do you feel like that actually do anything to, to develop leadership? You know, I don't. I see more bad examples than good examples, um, and I don't think that the companies are even aware that what they're doing is not effective. Um, you know, Philip Atkinson talks a lot in his uh, book, How to Be a Change Master, uh, about how 90% of all culture change efforts fail. And they tend to address the technical, rational things instead of emotional things. So, for example, um, we might send someone to a class and we think that that class is going to change people. Um, change is more an emotional commitment that someone makes in their own soul, not something that a company told them to do. But you see that a lot. It just, you know, I think we both see, uh, working with many clients out there, that companies do leadership training and they kind of just check a box. But that's not leadership development. Is that correct? That's right. It, it is an important component. Creating awareness of concepts is a good idea. But uh, John Maxwell says it this way, that many companies equip their people, but few develop them. So in a perfect scenario, a company would equip their people with leadership concepts they would maybe send them to some kind of class, talk about the concepts in a group setting, but that's just the first stage. Then there's the development process, and it's harder to do that, which is, I think, why most companies don't. It requires more time commitment. Anything great in your life is not going to come easy, which is why I think a lot of people shy away from it. But for example, if we put someone through a class on coaching techniques... Then the next stage for development would go like this. Someone who is an expert in coaching would walk around in an actual field environment and look for opportunities to coach. The student would follow around and they would watch how an expert coaches and they would use that opportunity to ask questions. Why did you do what you did there? The next stage, when the student was ready to try themselves they would go out and coach people and they would accept that failure is a necessary component within that. They wouldn't be experts overnight, so they would expect to fail, but they would have the expert with them to gently redirect, to answer questions, to have conversations about what they saw, what happened, how it worked out. So then the expert would get out of the way. They would allow the student to develop their own style. The student would go out on their own coaching people, but could call the expert to ask for any other additional advice or, or talk about what happened. And in that moment, when they're developing their own style, that's actually a good thing. The last thing I ever want to do is create more versions of me. I want to create other coaches that actually become better versions of me. 
And so after the student is actually out there coaching others on their own and feeling like they are doing a good job, they, they have a handle on the concept, they're ready to move on on their own, the next phase would be for that student who's become a coach to select new people to be new students to them. Because once that that student who's become a coach is teaching others, it ingrains that leadership trait like nothing else. Uh, back to the physician's axiom, see one, do one, teach one. So truly, you know, from what we see, most organizations really just don't do that development part. No, they don't. And I think one of the main reasons is it's just harder to do that. It requires a, a much greater time commitment and resources, and it's definitely easier to just check a box and say we did some training and move on. But development is definitely where the true change occurs. But, you know, organizations spend a lot of money on training. They'll go out and spend $100,000 on leadership training, and then they don't do the development part. Would you say they probably just threw away that $100,000? I think that they inspired some people in the room when they do that that uh, high level training, but not all of them. And uh, they tend to lump different types of personalities into one class. So you might have people that are very resistant to leadership traits. If you ever hear someone say something like "You can't fix stupid," then there's a good example of a resistor. Um. If you uh, hear kumbaya is another statement I've heard before with, uh, from resistors. And so they think that that's going to fix everybody. Now, you will have enthusiasts in a room when you conduct leadership training, and those people are more inspired to make their own changes. But when you want to change an entire company's culture, you have to get everybody on board, and that requires doing the development piece for everyone. So let's say that an organization does go down the path of doing the development. Obviously, coaching is a huge piece of that. So talk about coaching just a little bit. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of coaching models out there. Should someone use a model? Should someone not use a model? And just uh, what what, what would coaching kind of look like? So the main concept of coaching is to draw the problem and the solution out of the individual. It is the process of drawing from within. It's the process of teaching people how to think, not what to think. We live in a world where so many people, when they want an answer, they go on Google and find that answer. And that's not always serving you in the best way. For example, if I took a controversial topic like, do vaccines cause autism? If I went to Google and typed in, vaccines cause autism, I would find evidence to back up that thought. But if I typed in, vaccines do not cause autism, it's a myth, then I would find evidence to back up that belief system. The main idea of coaching is helping people find their own belief system, not telling them what to believe. So there's a a basic idea for coaching. Now, on the second part on models, models are a good place to start. But if you go search out in the world, you will find that there are a lot of different models out there. 
they are all pointers on a compass that point in a certain direction. No model is a specific step-by-step instruction manual. People develop models because no one knows where to start when they're new to the concept of coaching. And that gives you a starting point. I teach a coaching model in my classes for new entry-level people that don't get the draw-from-within concept. But that would be coaching 101. If we were going to master the coaching process, then we could develop our own coaching model on the fly in any given scenario. If we knew the depth of each step in a coaching model, we would be able to do that. It's funny you say that because I'm in the middle of developing a a course on creating your own coaching model right now. So obviously, coaching is just paramount. And in terms of human performance, how does leadership play into this? Oh, that's a deep question there. Um, You know, I'm going to go backwards for a minute to the old BBS days. And I remember you and I having conversations 20 years ago when BBS was the popular safety management system at the time. And we would find ourselves saying, making this statement on a regular basis, BBS is a great system as long as you have the leadership to support it. That same concept and that's those same conversations we're having today. Human performance is a great management system as long as you have the leadership to support it. And so why is leadership so important to human error? Um, one reason is what we know now is the majority of the time if we see someone doing something wrong, it's a system-induced error. The employee already knows it's against a policy or a law. They're doing it because they've been placed in a position to make a choice. Do I get the work done and make this person happy, or do I do all this safety stuff and make the safety person happy, but then make the other person that wants me to get the work done mad? And since most of the violations we see are attributed to system-induced errors, That's leadership's role to deal with that. We have to have leaders that are willing to address the system-induced errors. The other component is leadership is drawing the answer out of the employee. And it takes a really strong personality type that's high on an org chart to go down to a frontline worker and say, I'm sorry, I realize I might have placed you in a position designed to fail. I recognize that you are closest to this work and you actually know the struggles and solutions better than I do. Not everybody is willing to put their ego to the side and do that. Another component of leadership that affects human error is this idea that anyone is superior to anyone else. Um, there's not one dollar that I have ever used to buy food that I first didn't travel on asphalt to get that dollar. So at the end of the day, the same guy who put that asphalt down on the ground for me to drive on is the reason I have money in my bank account. I am not better than that person I just have a different set of life circumstances where I've had different opportunities. 
Um, so if I look at the worker like I'm superior as a manager instead of another equal member of my team, I'll never find the system-induced errors that are leading to the behaviors that I see. So another issue with human performance and leadership is it does require a commitment. Someone has to drive the bus. We need champions to develop teams to implement all of this. And so a good leader is going to support that. A, a bad leader will look at it more in that equipping, developing conversation we had earlier where they may send people to classes and hope that they're going to figure it all out. At the end of the day, we have to have someone step up to the table and say, we're going to do this, give the resources and time commitment, and drive the bus without leadership all you're going to get is a bunch of employees saying, yeah, I got punished for a system-induced error. And they'll probably just get better at hiding injuries. You know, the, the frustration that comes that I think you and I both see is we have clients where we go draw awareness to all the concepts of human error, and then we still discipline people for being put in a system-induced error. All that does is create frustration and then we can't move forward with implementing human error because we're punishing the people when they didn't commit a purposeful violation, but now they know. And it creates this tremendous amount of cynicism and creates this flavor of the month attitude amongst the workers. Definitely the flavor of the month and it actually causes more distrust. You know, human error, I think, is awesome that we have that understanding today. And I really believe that we're in the middle of all that, and it will be further refined in the future. But it's actually a worse thing to make people enlightened to system-induced errors, mental lapses, and then not do anything about it. So, Philip, let's say that an organization really, truly wants to move to a, a level of excellence in safety, and they want to go down this road of equipping and developing leaders in their organization. What's a good place to start? The training aspect is a good place to start as far as generating awareness. But the issue with training is a lot of times we put people in classes to fix them, and that's the opposite way we should look at that. We should start by selecting the team. If we start with identifying who are the people that are most enlightened within our organization that would buy into these concepts, get them, be inspired and passionate to learn more about them, we want to find those people. So we use the term enthusiasts a lot. Um, we talk about early adapters. They're the ones who would most quickly buy into it. They may not be jumping out of their seats to start, but they'd be the next group in line. So you would pick a team, a change team, that was heavily weighted in enthusiasts and early adapters you would not have any resistors in the room. And the reason I say that is when you do have people that are resistant to the understanding of human error or leadership traits, you end up spending the majority of your class time dealing with their resistance. And you end up taking away from the people who are really passionate and want to change. We should feed those that are hungry instead of 
bashing into all the people that are resistant to all of this. So we would take our team and we would develop them. You know, I, I should also say too that there are people that perceive what I just said as unfair, that we're showing some kind of favoritism. And you know what we are? We're showing favoritism to the most motivated people. What's wrong with that? Is that a bad thing to show favoritism to those people that are most hungry for trying to help your company become a better culture? We should reward that by giving them extra special training. After you make it through the develop awareness of the concepts equipping piece, coming up with some kind of personal growth plan for who those enthusiasts are, developing them out in the field, then we work on changing our culture. And in that moment, what we're trying to do is tip the scale of social proof. And so I should probably explain that concept a little bit. The concept of social proof is that the right thing to do is what everybody around me is doing. So, for example, I love the, the, the Chick-fil-A example. Everybody knows that when you go to Chick-fil-A, you most typically have a predictable experience that's very different than most other fast food restaurants. And if anybody's ever been to a fast food restaurant where the person at the drive-thru wasn't polite, you know what I'm talking about. You expect a smile and a, a high level of politeness at Chick-fil-A that you don't see anywhere else. So if I took that same person that was unfriendly at the drive-thru at the competitor's restaurant, they just wouldn't last in Chick-fil-A. They would either adapt to the Chick-fil-A culture or they just leave and say, this company's not for me. So that's where we're going with social proof is what we're trying to do is create that same kind of Chick-fil-A type culture where you either fit the model, you adapt to it, or you just go to work somewhere else. And eventually your team of people has a greater influence on culture than any single person could ever do themselves. The last thing that I would want to recommend to a company is the truth that you never arrive. Culture change and anything intentional in your life, personal growth, it's always about being on the path. And it's funny that uh, a lot of people want to arrive to a goal, but the true great feelings of accomplishment are not when the goal's achieved. They're being on the path. I think of so many great things in my life that I actually got more pleasure at achieving small steps along the way than getting to the goal. So for example, if I take something like there was a, a goal that I wanted to teach leadership in my past, and I went through a long process of developing myself to do that, and I gained so much more pleasure in developing myself than the moment I actually had a class I was teaching. When I received the pleasure of teaching my first full-day leadership class, that pleasure was short-lived. But being on the path of continual development is where the true pleasure actually occurs. And so going into that shift of recognizing there is no goal that we're going to arrive to and be done, it's shifting towards a goal of constant personal development 
and cultural improvement and enjoying that work, feeling satisfied from that work, feeling passionate about it, feel like you're changing the world and transforming not just the behavior of people at your company, but all these concepts they're going to take home in their own lives. You're also transforming their personal lives, which is more important than anything. Wow, that's powerful. You know, all of that makes so much sense. So why is it so hard? The hardest part is the emotional component. You know, when we look at all this stuff on paper or present the concepts in a class, we're doing it more from a technical, rational frame of mind. Everything makes sense. Human error just makes sense. The science makes sense. I see it in my own life. The hard part is the emotional component. So if I want someone to, let's say, um, I want them to identify system-induced errors that we commonly accept. There's some component of human performance that we would typically talk about. That's rational. But what about the emotional component? So when I ask a team to identify system-induced errors and come up with solutions... It makes sense, but what about the emotional part? Am I really asking them, I want you to do more work for the same amount of pay? Yes, we are asking them that. And how do we get them to buy into that? Um, They probably are busy if they're working for you. They probably spend a lot of time dealing with other responsibilities. So when we ask them to do more, there's an emotional component there. And are we addressing that? Do we need to maybe take something else off of their plate to deal with that emotional component? You know, another example I could use of the emotional component is, let's say we've enlightened all the supervisors to system-induced errors. Well, yesterday they could go out in the field and when they found somebody who wasn't tied off or, or using their fall protection properly, then they could just write them up and be done with the solution. Now we're asking them to identify why they're not tied off properly, which is going to take more of a time commitment. And then they might find out that the supervisor actually has part of the blame to own in that. Again, we're making their jobs harder for the same amount of pay. And that's the emotional component that we have to address, both for the supervisor. Are they ready emotionally to really dive into that? And then what are we doing for the fact that it is going to take them a lot longer to identify the system-induced error than it would to just write somebody up and give them a piece of paper that says they're in violation? The emotional component is the one that most people skip But that's, again, why Philip Atkinson says that 90% of culture change efforts fail because they don't address the emotional component. And that is a large reason why those supervisors or those managers, they need that upper-level support. Amen. They need help with that. If the supervisor unintentionally puts an employee in a system-induced error mode, 
most likely that is a lot more than just the supervisor. There's probably history there, um, the project manager, the estimator, the client they're working for all have teeth in the game there. So to fix that system-induced error requires everyone to help and participate. That takes a lot of time, and it is harder, and there's a lot of emotion that comes along with that as well. And to a large degree, that's why supervisors oftentimes feel like they're caught in the middle. That's right. It's put on them to fix the system-induced errors when project management probably has some teeth in the game. The estimating department did. Is the supervisor going to go straight to the owner-client representative and say, hey, your liquidated damage clause has put my people at a high level of risk, or is the company going to send someone high up in the org chart to send that message and have that conversation for the supervisor? You know, that, that brings up another common leadership trait. Don't tell me, show me. So if upper management is equipping supervisors with human error awareness, don't tell me to do this stuff. Show me that you will support me on this path. And that is absolutely critical. You know, when we talk about implementation of human performance in our courses at Georgia Tech, one of the first things we talk about is without that senior leadership support, it's kind of like playing Monopoly. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> That's so right. You know, that the funny thing, too, though, is that with all our culture assessments, I've noticed that when companies have great leaders at the top of the org chart, even when they don't have the detail of understanding of human error that we do, they still tend to get it. So I think you and I have both noticed that when companies have great leaders at the top, leaders that embrace effective leadership traits, leaders that are already on that path of intentional personal growth, that they tend to address system-induced errors unintentionally. Maybe they don't get all the details of the system-induced errors and all the HP tools that you and I talk about, but they know the basic concept of giving their employees what they need. And so, for example, I remember one company where a leader was really embracing all the John Maxwell leadership traits, and um, corporate gave them a policy where everyone had to go to class three attire. And so instead of telling the employees how they would achieve that goal, the leader, the actual top of the food chain org chart, came down into the field and asked the employees, how do you want to achieve this? He went to the safety department and asked them, what are different ways that we can move to class three attire? And the safety department gave them examples such as vests and t-shirts. And he asked the employees what it was that they wanted. And I think some of our listeners already know they're going to ask for the t-shirt because it's not going to get caught on things uh, in humid weather. It's not going to be as hot to wear. And then also employees are not going to damage a lot of their own personal t-shirts when they're wearing a class three t-shirt provided by the company. Now, through a bean-counting profit view, accounting might say that that t-shirt costs a lot more money than a vest. But 
one of the main issues I hear from companies today is we can't get good job retention. And if you're giving an employee what they want, you're probably more likely to retain them working for your company. And the same example I'm giving, I'll never forget, forget those employees were telling me that they were being offered a dollar an hour raises at a competitor down the street. But I remember a lot of them phrasing it this way. They said, I would never go to work for that company because of the way I'm treated here. But the funny thing is, how many system-induced errors or human mental lapses did we address with the t-shirt? So one, fatigue is something we talk about that leads to mental lapses. If someone is wearing less layers of clothing, we're actually whittling away at the fatigue issue. If a vest gets caught on a lot of conveyors around the plant, well, by giving them a, a t-shirt, we're whittling away at that system-induced air by not having layers of clothing that get caught on conveyors. So what I'm trying to explain here is a leader who wasn't as educated as us at human performance was actually minimizing system-induced errors and mental lapses because he was on a purposeful path at developing effective leadership traits. You know, something we both hear in human performance training is when people first get exposed to that, one of the most common things that you hear is this is some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> Address that, if you will. Yeah, we do hear, you know, both in, in human error and leadership, that comes up a lot, this idea that everything is positive and roses and daisies, and actually all of this is some hard work. Um, but we're not saying that we can't hold people accountable anymore. What we're really saying is we want to get more effective with what accountability is. Um, so there's a, a couple different thoughts I'd like to share on that. The first one is that there are people that do bad things. Uh, you know, you can flip on the news and you will find all kinds of examples of bad people doing bad things. That is true. And there are people that are going to do bad things within organizations and you should punish them or better yet, fire them. Um, if they are really a bad person and they are purposely doing bad things, they should be punished. Maybe to, depending on the level of the violation, maybe you need to give them some coaching. Maybe you want to give them a second chance, but if they don't get it, fire them. I mean, if they're coming to work drunk or they're stealing from you. Yeah, fire them. If they steal, they're intoxicated, failing the drug test, get rid of them. But what we know is that's only somewhere between 10, maybe 15% at best. And that we do need to over-focus on understanding and learning for the system-induced errors and the mental lapses. And the reason it is interpreted that we can't punish anyone anymore is because we do need to overly tip the scale back into understanding, motivating what 
is positive and you want to see reoccur. And that's where that misconception comes from. But the truth is, is 85, maybe 90% of every violation you see is a good person put in a place where they were most likely to fail. So accountability is good. I do believe that we should fire the crap out of bad people But what we know is we're treating everyone like they're a bad person, and we have to majorly tip the scale in the other direction, which is why there's that misconception that everything is roses and daisies now. Otherwise, we always default back to the blame thing. We default back to blame because it's easy and because your quick emotional autopilot limbic brain wants to do that. It's a lot harder to figure out why that employee behaved that way and take ownership in it. So, Philip, any final thoughts? So, I think with anything, it's important to have a minimum baseline. We've talked about a lot of concepts today, but everybody has to start somewhere. And the best place to start is actually yourself. So, for whoever's listening, if you would pick one small area and focus on that and build upon it. What you're doing is you're building a habit in your brain. So let's say you give yourself a small achievable goal, like I'm gonna read up on this, I'm gonna read a book, or I'm gonna listen to an audio book in my car. What you're doing is creating a small little habit inside your brain that you can build upon. If you take in some more information, and through a book or, or through an audio book or a podcast or anything like that, then you're on the path of continual development. So those small achievable goals always lead to big major successes. So Philip, if you would, how about give the audience some information on uh, where they can get more information from you, either through ProSafe or through LeaderThink, how they can find your podcast? Sure. So at leaderthink.com on the podcast page, I have a a bi-monthly podcast and we discuss a lot of the concepts that you and I have talked about today and uh, in their own full dedicated podcast. And under the subscribe button are all the major host platforms like Apple and Stitcher and Spotify. But also ProSafe has their own podcast page with a lot of the topics more focused on human air. I'm you can email us at info at leaderthink.com or at philip at prosafesolutions.com if you want to know more about our culture assessment services, our leadership training, or our human air training. And obviously, if somebody wants to uh, contact you to get leadership training and development, they certainly can do that, right? Either through ProSafe or through LeaderThink, either one. We are all on the same team. Well, Philip, I got to say, this was a really enjoyable interview, and I hope all the listeners really enjoyed this. There was a tremendous amount of information to absorb, and I really encourage folks to maybe listen to this podcast two or three different times just to really take it all in. Thanks for having me, Mike. I always appreciate talking about these concepts with you. Thank you, Philip. And for the listeners out there, check back with us every two weeks and go out and save a life. 